Welcome to Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. Rippling muscles, handsome good looks, pure of heart and noble of deed, and that's just your host to talk. Or he was when first he stepped onto the Liars stage. By now, I'm stooped under the weight of misdeeds, ravaged by vice, with a heart as cold as stone. Power corrupts, they say, and I am the one with the microphone. You may be holding out for a hero who takes ten years or longer to arrive, having lost his entire crew along the way, and will slaughter all your guests in a fit of matrimonial jealousy. Or perhaps you're already plotting villainous acts. In which case, we very much want to watch from a safe distance, of course. Either way, we have five stories for you on this, our Heroes and Villains-themed event. We have three heroic tales in our first half, followed by an interval full of villainy, before we return with the infamous Lies League book quiz. <laughs> and a dynamic duo of epic tales to finish. He's the greatest. He's fantastic. Wherever there is danger, he'll be there. I am, of course, referring to Danger Man. If you want to be an unsung hero tonight, please ensure your bat phones are off or too silent, and we'll begin our perilous odyssey. Our first story will be Four Barrels of Ale by David Plotskin, read by Tony Bell. David lives with his family in the southern tier of New York State, in the United States, where he enjoys excellent weather and plentiful hills to bike upon. He loves making things up, but in real life, he's a professor of electrical engineering at Binghamton University. Evening Standard Award nominee for A Man for All Seasons, Tony Bell has performed all over the world with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company Propeller, playing Bottom, Vesta, Autolycus, and Tranny. TV includes Coronation Street, Holby City, Midsummer Murders, EastEnders, and The Bill. He's also a radio and voiceover artist. Tony! Four Barrels of Ale by David Klotzkin. There was a roaring fire. Bess, the innkeeper's lovely wife, moved through the crowd, pouring mugs of ale, one to each, except for Big Sam, who took two, and Little Nell, who also took two, one in each dainty hand. Between them stood Will, a stout lad, who was leaving tomorrow to join the King's service. To Will, Big Sam boomed and hoisted his mug. To Will! Will wobbled on his feet, a victim of too many toasts in his honour. 
You'll like it there, lad, I, said Big Sam. I was a pikeman for three years. Plenty to eat, warm in winter, stand watch six hours a day is all. The scullery maids and seamstresses, they love the soldiers. The ladies do too, said the innkeeper. Even the princesses, they all laughed. Best most of all. I want to be a squire and then a knight. Will looked longingly at the sword hung as display piece over the mantle. Not just a pikeman. Them be sons of lords, Will. Or of knights, mostly, said Big Sam gently. Will's face fell. But sometimes outstanding pikemen. I will be. Will's eyes sparkled. I'll be the bravest pikeman they've ever seen. The king's favourite. Aye, lad, and then you'll be the bravest knight. Big Sam slammed down his mug. Innkeeper, a tale to see Will off. The innkeeper's tales had wild away many evenings. He knew that the right tale is a path through a dark forest. Will was not yet sixteen, his cheeks still downy as a peach. I'll tell a knight's tale. One I heard when I was in king's service, long ago, far away, and with another king. Tis a true tale, and I cannot change it. An ombre morto was loose in the kingdom and had taken the head of a peasant girl. The ombre morto are fearsome creatures whose strength is shadows, light and dark together. They are not seen in like in light and in darkness they're only tricksters but in shadows they grow fangs claws and they're as strong as ogres they are known by the headless bodies they leave behind and the knights sent to slay them who don't return this girl was found in a field of moonflowers where she'd been picking flowers under the stars the fearful peasants petitioned the king for help Bother, said the king, who left his feasting and summoned Geraint. Geraint was young, recently knighted, brave and skilled with the sword. As you love me, Geraint, rid me of this shadow beast, commanded the king impatiently. And Geraint knelt, overwhelmed by the honour of the king's charge. Ombra morto are never seen, but they leave tracks like any creature. Geraint followed these tracks from the decapitated body of the peasant girl towards the golden glow of the western hills until he came to the entrance of a cave. Geraint considered to meet the creature in light or in darkness. With light, he thought, there would always be shadow, so he chose darkness. He inched his way to the cave, sword in hand, flint in the other. With every step the light retreated until it was pitch black. The ground crunched under his boots and he reached down and he picked up handfuls of stones and bones. Geraint's foot nudged something soft in his hand, felt fine hair, sticky wetness. It was the girl's head. Help me, it whispered, still somehow alive. Then the Ombra Morto's voice, unctuous and thick as honey, echoed from the surrounding walls. A wise hero, meeting me in darkness. 
My king has sent me to slay you, monster, said Geraint. Heroes don't need kings, the Ombromorto's voice was amused. Why do you do his bidding? My king loves me, said Geraint. When you fall, he'll forget you and send another. No, no, said Geraint. Leave, hero. I won't harm you. You can't harm me in the dark. Geraint reached into the pitch black with his senses. Though he saw nothing, heard nothing, he smelt the delicate perfume of moonflowers which bloom at night. You can't stay forever, said the Umbramato. When I find you in shadow, I will take your head. You won't die for a hundred years. The girl's head wailed and was answered by a chorus of moans that echoed off the cavern walls. Leave while you can, hero. The wailing set ice into his bones. Geraint shivered. Then the moonflower scent was in front of him, and he struck the flint. Before him was a man-shaped greyness, soft and doughy, a garland of moonflowers around its neck. Geraint's sword flicked out, and the head of the Umbramato rolled off and landed on the ground. The Ombramato spoke its last. Kings need heroes. Heroes don't need kings. In the torchlight, the floor was scattered with heads, some fresh, some old, some only bone. Some had also been knights, helmed like he was. The innkeeper... Quaffed a mug of his own ale and stood. Another best moved through the crowd, graceful as a crane in flight. Refilling the mugs, Will scowled. Little Nell threw her arm over Will's shoulders. That's a terrible ending. The king wouldn't have forsaken him. Will's voice quavered. The, the Umbra Mortal was a liar. The innkeeper sighed. The right tail is a path through the woods. He said, the Umbra Mortal had slain many a knight, but never a king. There's more to tell, if you want to hear it. Geraint shook off the monster's final words and left the western hills with a spring in his step and two heads in his sack. One, the peasant girls returning for burial. The second, the head of the fearsome Ombramato that had slain her. Her lordship was not too much to dream about. When Geraint arrived, the king embraced him, kissed him on both cheeks, called forth the court to honour him. Princess Elizabeth was there, smiling and clapping along with the other ladies and lords. Even Princess Elizabeth was something to dream about. The king said, let's see what you have. Geraint reached into the sack and removed the girl's head, which still had moonflowers in her hair. Her features were lovely, her expression serene. Oh, a pity to lose that, said the king, and kissed the head loudly on the mouth. Uncomfortable laughter rippled through the court. He winked, handed it back to Geraint. Geraint pulled out the Ombramorto's head. In the light it was a lumpy rock with black pools for eyes and a toothless hole for a mouth. Oh! The king prodded it with a fat finger 
that's not so frightening. Well, well I, I suppose you know your business. Geraint flushed. He descended into the cave in pitch darkness, not knowing if he would see the light again. It was a shadow beast. In shadow it had teeth and claws and was a monstrous thing. Like most fears, it was small and comical in the light. The king called for a toast. He raised his glass and the company grew silent. For your service, the king said. Geraint hoped a lordship, a chance to woo Princess Elizabeth. For your service, four barrels of my finest ale. He belched. Geraint choked back his anger. This was all. The alemaster brought the four barrels up on a court and presented it to Geraint. The king waved him off in dis dismissal. A scullery maid followed him out of the court. Sir Geraint, it was my sister who was taken by the ombre morto. I'm so sorry, said Geraint, and bowed deeply. He gently passed to the head. She left, weeping, and Geraint went to the guardroom, pulling the cart of ale behind him, thinking that he'd never needed a drink more. The innkeeper drank and clapped his hands. Again, Bess produced the pitcher and refilled the mugs. We'll look sober now, aghast and shaken. That can't be. T'was, lad. Tis true. I can't change it. Will sagged against little Nell as the innkeeper spoke to him directly. Go, Will. Learn. Serve the king well. But don't put your heart in his hand, is all. Will's face twisted. Nell hugged Will and glared at the innkeeper. Finish this story, you fool, with a happy ending. One good for setting a lad off on, on, on the king's service. A tale is a path through the forest, thought the innkeeper. But enough was enough. Cheer up, lad, he said briskly. There is a happy ending to all of this. Most true stories end happily, if the hero lives. As Geraint dragged the cart through the damp corridors of the castle toward the guardroom. He felt a hand on his arm. It was Princess Elizabeth. We're all grateful, she said. Not all, Geraint mumbled. What was it like? I found the ombre morto in pitch darkness, following the scent of moonflowers. After I cut off its head, I lit a torch. All around were heads of other victims, some fresh, some rotting, some only skulls. Princess Elizabeth shuddered. The ombre morto had not touched him. It was powerless in pitch dark, and his only battle was against his own fear. But the last words the monster had spoken planted the seeds of doubt in his heart. In darkness, its only weapon was words, said Geraint. It said, heroes don't need kings. It was right, the princess whispered. Come with me. Geraint asked, throwing caution aside, and to his astonishment, and her own, she agreed. At midnight that very night, Princess Elizabeth and Sir Geraint rode from the castle, left the kingdom, travelled far away, where they no doubt now lived humbly and happily together in some little village. They all clapped. Will looked thoughtfully at the sword over the mantel. No more a night, then, Will asked, 
the innkeeper smiled, I'm sure he is happier now, wherever he is, even if he is just uh, serving ale instead of serving a king. But that's a proper happy ending, said Nell. An evil king, a princess and a true tale too. That should set Will on his way tomorrow. I- I'm not sure, said Will. Maybe I'll sleep on it another night. Aye, said the innkeeper. That would be wise. Big Sam spoke up. Well, that's not true, that story. I was a guard for three years for our king, you know. No one leaves after dark. Thieves on the road. A guard who let any king's daughter pass at midnight in company of a common knight would find his head on a pike. There was a murmur. A princess couldn't just walk out of the castle at midnight. Suppose they were drunk, said the innkeeper. The guards, the guards on duty, Sam snorted. All the knights and the guards. All, Big Sam drained one of the mugs to the dregs. Yes, all, said the innkeeper. Blind drunk, drunk as lords. Then Geraint and Princess Elizabeth could leave at their pleasure, knowing no pursuit would even be possible for at least half a day. That's true, said Bess. She poured her husband another cup and rested a hand on his arm, and Will's eyes widened as he realised Beth, Bess, was as pretty as any princess. Perhaps whatever pursuit was launched would be half-hearted at best, the innkeeper continued. Geraint was a brother in arms, and they'd seen him done poorly with their own eyes, and he was the best among them, and he still had his sword. Now the innkeeper looked at the sword over the mantel. Drunk, though, Big Sam drained his second mug and belched and laughed. All drunk, impossible. Do you know how much ale it would take to get us lot drunk? Yes, said the innkeeper. Four barrels. Three for the guards and pikemen. One for the knights. After all, it was the king's finest ale. Our second story of the evening will be The Man Downstairs by Renisha Danraj and will be read by Anushka Deshmukh. Renisha was born in Guyana but now lives in NYC with her family. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Brooklyn College and is a lover of speculative fiction. Having graduated from East 50 in acting school in 2023, Anushka is a British Indian agency represented actor experienced in screen and stage acting. Recent credits include Romeo and Juliet, Nora, A Doll's House, and 49 to Midnight short film Farewell Fiesta. Anushka! The Man Downstairs by Renisha Danrach. Tonight, again, Madam cannot sleep because of the rustling. Because Madam doesn't sleep, I can't sleep. She pulls me from my cot, a meagre straw pushed to the furthest corner of her bedroom, 
and wraps my fingers around the pint of broom. We keep the broom inside now. Downstairs, she says. Downstairs is the kitchen, which is where I slept before Madame got the way she is now. A man is downstairs. A man has gotten into the kitchen because Madame left the downstairs window open, hoping that a breeze will flit its way in and soothe the overheating of ancient womanhood. We're in the dry season, so there's not even that sporadic gust that travels all the way from the river after it's had its share of flapping the jungle leaves or caressing the macaw's chin. And since chills down macaw's madam's back for three seconds before heat engulfs her again. Now a man has flitted in. A bandit. A bandit, she's sure. She is a stupid woman if she left the window open without telling. She knows they must be shut and covered with foil at night. Now a bandit has gotten in, an experienced bandit who knows how to melt down to a snake and sidewind his way in. If he was a snake, we need not worry. Everyone finds snakes in their kitchen and stomps on the throat when they do. Chop off their head and fry up the tail in curry. Pickle the skin for medicine. The man downstairs is more dangerous than a snake. He's here because he has a wife and two pickney to feed, and his wife's belly is big with a third. He doesn't have education because his parents couldn't afford to put both his brother and him through school. The brother lives in Georgetown and is a big man working for Kaisho News, while he, the bandit man, robs to survive. Bandits get hungry too. But he is here for more than food. Best believe he's chosen Madam's house because he's heard the news. Heard it straight from the mouth of the villagers. He knows that Madam is a widow. Bad news travels fast. Even people in Georgetown know that Madam's doltish husband is dead. That he died a year ago because of clottish blood. Then people aren't smart enough to know about blood clot. They can't imagine how it wedges inside a man's heart and causes him to stumble out of the bathroom and flop over and ride naked on the miserable floor. They know only that clots foretell death. Whenever concern flickers across their doctor's face, they joke, serious and proud. No blood clot, right? Madam is husbandless, close to servantless. Who can blame the ones who couldn't wait for him to draw his last breath and who ran out as soon as Madam's husband flopped onto the floor? Who can stay in a place where no powerful man resides? Madam has one servant left, a servant who likes to watch guava leaves dance in the shadows of the ceiling, who stays on because no one will take her. Tainted by a lifetime of servitude to the husk of a woman who won't acknowledge the grey in her hair and the whispers at her back. A stubborn woman. She's mistress of this house and won't abandon it. Not that there's much left to abandon. What once was a big house, a mansion in these back dam parts, now looks no better than a tool shed in the schoolyard. A tool shed is better. A tool shed has purpose, knows that it is useful. Madam's house is so dark, so feeble, so shrunken in. The floorboards are slippery, unwalkable because they refuse to take polish. 
All but one of the staircases have lost their spine and collapsed. If Madame's remaining servant were a man, the bandit might have walked past her house. But because two women, nay, a woman and a child not far past her first cycle, live here, he'll take off his shoes and walk across the mud floor like it's Easter and he's flying kite on the beach. Because Madame's husband is dead. We're vulnerable. Madame cannot see that if she was born one of those rare, willful women she looks at with scorn, a woman born under a full moon or a woman whose father beat courage into her, things might be different. We might stand a chance. Madame is a tormented woman. A step that creaks in an unfamiliar way convinces her that someone wants her dead. Everyone wants her dead. This bandit may be no bandit at all, but an assassin paid down to hunt down her bloodline and erase all traces of her. First, he'll kill Madame, kill her neighbours, then kill whatever family remains unbeknownst to her in the far reaches of the jungle, across the ocean, on the other side of the universe. She has doomed everyone she's spoken to or touched. Everyone she has looked at. He has means of finding them. Nothing is beyond people nowadays. Or he may be something else. Perhaps someone has discovered Madam's right name. Madam means to say, I have blabbed her Hindu name to someone and cursed her using black magic. Then this bandit is worse yet. He's a spiritual being and nothing in this world can stop him. He's not one of us villagers. Of that, she's certain. Madam knows the tramping of everyone in the village. The schoolmaster walks with a hesitant, light step, as if he himself doesn't believe the nonsense he spouts to his pupil and makes him scribe away at. The men of trade, our butchers, our diamond ball sellers, our farmers, all are too masculine, too heavy-footed. She was once the talk of these men when they gathered after work to play domino and drink rum. Back in the day, she was a seamstress. The men talked about her back in a distinct slouch in the neck, and her neck tucked in between the shoulder blades as though seeking warmth. She was sweet. Then she married and discovered the taste of a little money. Now all they see of us, of me, is when I go to shop for Madame at the marketplace. There is no reprieve in shopping. Cake and custard have no place in our world. Say one forgets oneself and hoovers too long over the frying pot of gulab jamun or smiles at a handsome boy. What stupidness is this, eh? It won't be long before I forget to laugh too. Madam knows them all. But she may be wrong. And the man downstairs might be the schoolmaster, the diamond ball seller. He might be the pundit who walks miles to bless babies and perform pujas at the houses that dot the very border of the village. Houses that touch the darkness of the interior self. There's never an any recognizing these men. They know to wear dark clothes and a shawl, to daub their eyes and cheekbones with coal. coal. They're smart enough to never leave their house without flinging on a scarf or hat. Best believe our bandit has all the scarves and hat a man could ever want in his life, each one a different color. A pint of broom is really no match for him. A pint of broom is all we have and not even a new one. Madame is made, Madame's is made from ugly and rain-battered branches. Still, there's no point in us staying locked up in this bedroom like souls in a corral. 
If he can enter the kitchen, he can enter the bedroom. He could be one of a group of three or five or thirty. The rest might be on their way and he's just the lookout, the surveyor, the scout. Imagine the king. The surveyor scouts the house and if there's anything worth stealing, stealing, he sends his gang a signal. They've agreed on a distract. He will pull a white rag out of his rucksack and tie it to the guava tree in the front yard. They'll see the rag fluttering the black night and know to pounce. We don't have much worth stealing. On the top shelf of the kitchen cupboard are the jambi dishes, the vegetarian karahis and the murtis. On the, the kitchen is no place for religious items, but madam insists. Everything else was stolen by those who left or is too tarnished to be worth stealing. He, they, are too smart, so they know we have nothing. He will tie the white rag regardless, and his twenty-nine brothers will be upon us. Hate draws them. Hate for Madame and her rebellion. Husband and house fallen. She rebels by carrying on. A woman should know when to submit. If one of us should go down there, the thought is painful because it is no thought at all. In mere seconds, the thought will break the barrier between future and present and become our reality. Say, instead, when one of us goes down there, and this is not up for debate, I will be the one to go down. The going down will be the end of us, of me. The stairs will shake, so there will be an urge to fling oneself off them and get the ordeal over with. But the body never listens to the brain. There will be one way of going down, and that will be to flatten against the wall of the stairs and that the stairs jut out of and tiptoe down like a nervous ballerina. And then he'll notice. Even if he were blind, he would notice what I am. He sees a servant, but then I transform into a girl, then into a woman, until finally I become what Madam has always told me I am. A gauze curtain not worth pushing out of his face. He notices, because there is moonlight, streaming in through the open window which is slanted so the light will blind me when my big toe touches the last step. Even if I had put my socks on so the balls of my feet don't slap the stairs when my toes inevitably fail to keep my body upright, he would notice. What else crosses a man's head when he finds himself alone with a woman in a kitchen where moonlight is streaming in? I've forgotten to brandish the broom the way Madame taught me to. What I need is a cutlass, but I can't remember where Madame keeps hers. I can be sure he has a cutlass, and any moment now, he will draw it from his rucksack. Tonight, there is a big sporting happening on Dundee Dam. Not to celebrate anything in particular, but for people to change into gouting clothes, gaff, and drink rum until their belly bursts. And no one there could possibly hear you scream. Or care. Madam lives far from the road, far inside the trees. No sound you make will reach inside. And even if the neighbours, our only neighbours, aren't out, then surely the husband is at home watching cricket, snoring louder than the umpire's calls which fail to rouse him because he's hard of hearing. And his wife has retired early to bed because she must perfume herself tomorrow to play secretary in Georgetown. But they are out. They must be. They are slumped over one another on the dam bridge, too drunk to distinguish between screaming and owl squawking. If they happen to be at this moment crossing in front of this house, 
They wouldn't shout for help. They would draw their cloaks tighter around themselves and thank God that they are likable. So you see, there really is nothing near us. Nothing except the dam, which is far, so very far away. Girl, will you scream with a cutlass pricking the goose flesh on your throat? Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be The Greater Good by Mark Anthony Hurt, read by Jeremiah O'Connor. Mark Anthony has dedicated his professional career to assembling from scratch a large international financial services startup in white knuckle fashion. Writing is his chill pill of choice. Regarding the quality of his prose, Mark's mum is willing to confirm her son's wealth of talent via email upon request. <laughs> Jeremiah is an Irish actor whose credits include the BBC's Call the Midwife, Waiting for Godot at the Cockpit Theatre, and a stint as James Joyce and Tristan Tsar in Patrick Marber's Travesties at the Apollo. He's also worked with immersive theatre group Punch Drunk, the central London recreation of the Crystal Maze, and spent time as a Tudor cook at Hampton Court Palace. Jeremiah! It's not perfect, but they've done it. It will be presented tomorrow by the team leader, nerdy Portuguese Save the Bees guy. Remember him? The invite has been sent out to all members of the club. See you there. That's what the email had said. Wilson had bum sweat, which meant he was excited. He hadn't expected his money to deliver results so soon, maybe ever, in truth. The door opened, and in came Tiago. Small frame, kind face. An image filled a giant screen. Uh, thank you for the honour of selecting uh, me to present our project uh, to you. A subtle accent cradled his Queen's English. Not at all, Tiago. You were chosen as a consequence of your intellect and involvement in the project. Please begin the presentation. A button was clicked and the image changed. Tiago pushed a slipping pair of glasses up his nose. Our uh, think tank, uh, think tank uh, has spent uh, the last six years attempting to resolve the problem as defined in uh, the Humanity Eternal Project. We have been able to dedicate our best minds at full time, courtesy of some of you here today. The room was silent. Click. It is my pleasure to announce that a successful model has been found with a 97.7% a 7% certainty rate, correct to two uh, decimal places. Small gasps rose from the, from the small audience. The model has been run on the order of 10 times 10 to the power of 64. Uh, this has been uh, possible 
uh, thanks to the supercomputer technology that has been made available. Okay. We shall now discuss the inputs of the model. Wilson glanced at his wife, Melissa. Her nails were digging into his palms. She continued to look ahead. Click. The data from our sensors deep in the Earth and the satellites around our planet have allowed our machine learning algorithms to develop a reliable predictor of exacerbation of climate conditions leading to human death. Our engine can produce the probabilistic outcome of human deaths from diseases, uh, natural disasters, heat waves, forest fires, etc., as a result of climate change. Tiago paused to clear his throat. <clears throat> For example, between now and the end of this meeting, in 15 minutes, our lack of climate action will lead to an estimated 136 deaths. How do we know this? Uh, we tell the engine that we will continue to follow the existing no specific action course for 15 more minutes. Shocked glances. A distant ringing phone. Silenced. If we permit the no specific action course to play out fully, uh, that is, we allow the capitalistic market to try to resolve this themselves, uh, the total death toll in 2155 will be of 8.5 million. Though this suggests there will be survivors, we urge caution. Uh, this model gives no data beyond this point because the atmosphere will have entered a new uh, equilibrium whose conditions are uncertain. Uh, but simply, we do not know if humanity will be able to adapt uh, to this new climate, let alone breathe um, the surrounding air. As you all know, uh, the Humanity Eternal Project was conceived in order to propose some alternative scenarios to this outcome. And the fundamental issues uh, we are faced with has long been known. Uh, the planet cannot absorb, absorb greenhouse gases at the rate at which we are producing them. Uh, the scope of the project has been to consider the ideal uh, population of the planet, which will sustain human life for an indeterminate length of time. Click. With the new data sets from collaborative media partners, uh, we know that greenhouse gas emissions per person per day, according to the selection of people to remove uh, from the model, we can directly determine the point at which a loss of climate equilibrium is averted and humanity is uh, ultimately saved. A voice rose up. What does he mean by, by people to remove from the model? Uh, for, for example, if we merely remove the top 9.2% of human emitters by the end of this year, we will reach peak carbon in less than a decade and begin our path to neutrality. This is the best option, with the lowest number of people affected, life as we know it will continue. Another voice. Remove? Does he mean kill? Wilson found himself clenching his teeth. Yet another voice. What, is, is this a threat? In front of the angering crowd, Tiago moved a trembling hand to his mouth. Silence, 
Wilson was standing on the stage. Nobody should be shocked here. You heard the man. If we do not act, people will die. If one person may die, so 100 more may yet live, is that not the greater good? If a thousand people may die for the continuation of our species and the countless creatures we share our planet with, is that not the greater good? Ladies and gentlemen, I demand your intelligence and presence of mind. Well, sir, is he talking about the... He's talking about the top emitters. Many of those are in this very room. Thank you for addressing the real issue. Tiago was giving that as an example. As you very well know, we are all here to decide the subgroups that will be affected. So, of course, everyone here and their connections up to two degrees of separation are safe. Uh, Tiago has already been asked to factor this into the model. The audience collectively relaxed its shoulders. Tiago was breathing heavily. That is all for the presentation of the model. A round of applause for Tiago and his team, please. The audience, understanding now, paving the way for excitement, made their appreciation known. You have each been shared an app application that will help you make your selections of the subgroups to remove. Melissa and I ask that you all finalize your choices by our next meeting in precisely 24 hours. We shall take a cross-section of all our decisions and proceed to execute. Each of your submissions will be weighted equally. Choose wisely, for our humanity depends on it. Everything went dark. Wilson slipped off his headset. The foam around the virtual goggles was damp with sweat. He felt tired, but his heart shone with elation. Melissa? What the fuck, Wilson? Melissa walked into the room, headset still strapped to her forehead. Partner more than wife, friend more than lover, a voice of reason in his sometimes cacophonous mind. I'm losing my godforsaken shit here since goddamn when was killing humans the only viable path? Melissa, please, we've talked about this. What? We've talked about being the biggest evil megalomaniacs humanity's ever fucking seen. Forgive me, but it appears to have slipped my fucking memory. Later in the library, Brandy on the rocks. So, Melissa, as I said, the project was requested because we knew that putting the fate of humanity in the hands of the market was not a viable option. Yes, fine, but there are many ways of manipulating the market that do not involve, you know, you're absolutely right. The options are, one, produce less greenhouse gases, two, help the Earth absorb more greenhouse gases. Last of all, reduce the human population. Much of our efforts in the first two-thirds of this century have been on options one and two. Remember those machines that suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, condense it and pack it deep into the ground? This is what the market is focusing on right now, and it's not going to save us. All this technology can ultimately achieve is kick the can a little further down the road. What makes you so sure? We might come up with something really great. What about those new uh, solar plants that are expected to be twice as efficient as nuclear power? Tell me, Melissa, despite our endless improvements, has the rate of greenhouse gas emissions decreased even once since the year 2000? 
silence. Let me tell you, it hasn't. We have continued to emit more of these gases than the previous year, every year since the start of recorded data. Our technology is not fixing the fundamental problem. I have spent the last 30 years of my life creating new technology, new solutions, but all that, that has done is allow the human population to continue its dramatic growth. We continue to push the limits of this earth. Whenever a new piece of technology cuts the planet some slack, we gobble it up as fast as we can. We are incurable. I see. The choice is therefore singular. Accept death or take drastic measures to save a select group. Wilson and Melissa sat in silence for a while. Wilson, if we save those rich bastards like you said, we're not fixing anything. They will continue destroying the world and inevitably humanity will find itself here again, on the cusp. It would be essential to eliminate the egotistical members in the club like Stacy. I mean, she still owns that illegal oil fracking empire. Wilson looked forlorn. Nobody has access to the source code, Melissa. As you can imagine, it was done under the highest security measures. An individual programmer working on the project will not even know how his piece of code fits into the whole. Wilson, are you or are you not the richest man in the world? Over the next 24 hours, the members of the club made their selections. Presidents, royalty, business tycoons, financial leaders, media moguls, oil giants, oligarchs, the greatest 52 men and... 12 women of power on planet Earth cancelled their agendas, poured themselves a stiff one, and sat down quietly to take the most important decision that were ever to be taken in the history of humanity. The first few billion were surprisingly easy to select. A whole continent? We won't be needing that. A group of countries? Don't know anyone from there. Rural lands, minimal impact. The nobodies of the world dropped into the pot. Each counted little, of course, for they were often lower emitters, but they were many. After that, <laughs> even with the personal enemies thrown in, it got a bit trickier. There were some tears. But when the clock chimed the 24-hour mark, all the submissions had been made. The second meeting commenced. Wilson and the fidgety Tiago were up on the stage explaining that the cross-section of the data sets was currently being produced. The results will be kept deliberately confidential. Another vote was held in which the date and time of the removal was to take place. All was set. Most of the members turned up to the room designated for the event. The virtual server crater resembled a Caribbean resort with beach volleyball, emerald sea, and scantily clad simulated ladies. In the sky, a giant ceiling of statistics could be pondered upon. The attendees lounged in chairs and chatted amongst one another. Finally, the time came. It was slow at first. In a living room in London, a pensioner dropped dead. 
He cracked his forehead against a chair, smashing his headset. A leathered old lady in the Australian bush, government-issued biometric ID in her satchel, fell like an autumn leaf. For many, it happened in the first instant. For others, it was the news of the event that dragged them to the devices. The bar charts and statistics in the virtual sky ballooned. Wilson, Melissa, and a few others were playing volleyball. As Wilson prepared to receive the service from Stacy, she vanished. The ball dropped to the ground. What happened to Stacy? Don't tell me somebody picked Stacy. Wilson looked at Melissa. She looked straight back, expressionless. One by one, the planet's wealthiest had vanished from the virtual world. In the real one, they were collapsing. Neurons fried by the deadly single, signal, signal emitted by the countless devices that plagued their houses, living rooms and bodies. Wilson and Melissa dared not move until they were alone on the sand. Then they came close and hugged. Melissa was crying, and so was Wilson. It's over, said Wilson. Tiago agreed this morning. In his arms, Melissa vanished. In the moment of astonishment that followed, Wilson did nothing. Then he vanished too. Jeremiah. And that brings us to the interval. It's time to indulge in your own personal hero's journey. To the bar, perhaps, or the toilet, whatever your particular call to action may be. Or if you're feeling dastardly, time to decide who you're going to tie to the train tracks ahead of the express of the infamous Lisley book quiz. But don't forget to get written consent. You have about 20 minutes before we return. Shazam! Hello! It's time for the infamous Lies League book quiz! Shall we enter the books? Yes. So these are the books you could win if you're quick enough and clever enough. Yes, so good. So, we are a short story night, so tonight we have four fantastic short story anthologies and one thrilling novel for your reading pleasure, if you're clever enough. Do your literary superpowers extend to winning Out of the Darkness, an anthology of horror and dark fantasy to bring your worst fears out into the light. Edited by Elias Lugalumnus, Dan Coxon, it features stories by some of the best horror authors writing today, including 
Jen Ashworth, Richard V. Hurst, Alison Moore, Nicholas Royal, Sam Thompson, and who else should I select? Leo Whiteley. Uh, so if you fancy having the pants scared off you, this is the book for you. Nick Luth, The Body in the Shadows. Over one million copies sold. Possibly not of this book, but of many of his other books, no doubt. Sometimes old sins cast long shadows, sounding pretty villainous. Under a motorway flyover lies the body of a young man. Days earlier, he had been involved in an altercation with DCI Craig Gillard's pregnant partner, Sam. Now he's dead. The body, not the detective. <laughs> or else there would be no novel. Uh, this is another anthology from the fabulous Unsung, who really do get the best talent. Uh, this is This Dreaming Isle. Don't know if anyone likes folk tales, folk horror. That, yeah, I love it too, right? Uh, Britain's long history of old folk tales, ghost stories, and other uncanny fiction shimmers beneath the surface of this green and pleasant land. And some of the contributors to this are well known uh, in the field Robert Shearman, Kirsty Logan, James Miller, Gary Budden, Ramsey Campbell, and Andrew Michael Herney. Oh, and Catriona Ward. Fantastic authors, all in this particular anthology. This is by Sam Thompson, Whirlwind Romance, it's called. Uh, it's a collection of short stories. Sam Thompson's previous uh, novel in stories was called Communion Town, and we love it because he name checked the league. He had a little joke about, you know, the devilish, I think the villainous liars league. Uh, I know. Uh, so, and it's, it's brilliant. He's, he's such a brilliant writer. I have to recommend. Uh, <clears throat> Urban Welsh, a name I suspect uh, everybody will recognise. Reheated Cabbage is a selection of his uh, unpublished short stories. Uh, well, those that were published in various uh, anthologies and so forth. And I hope there are no Scots people in the room because I'm going to read you the description in my best. Accent. In these pages, you can enjoy Christmas dinner with baby. Uh, you will discover in the Rosewell incident how aliens addicted to Embassy Regal have Midlothian under surveillance and plan to store the local casuals as the new governors of planet Earth. You will not be surprised to read that a televised Hibs v Hearts game might matter more to one character than the life of his wife. Or that two guys fighting over a beautiful girl might agree, on reflection, and after a few pills and many pints of lager, that their friendship is actually more important. Oh, oh bless. Heartwarming tales, <laughs> as one would expect from Irvin Welsh. And if you are not lucky or clever enough or quick enough uh, to win one of these, don't be sad. Because there are three Fantastic Rising anthologies over there for sale. They are five pounds each and they contain brilliant stories as well. So if you're wise, everyone goes home with a book. Exactly. Now, um, my X-ray vision isn't actually working tonight. And it's as dark as Batman's lair out there. So if you think you know the answer, show us your best flying Superman arm... And give us your most evil laugh. <laughs> no, evil, evil than that. Proper evil. Really evil. As evil <laughs> as you can get. 
Let's give that a try on three. One, two, three. That was very good on the last. I saw no Superman arms. Right. Just, just saying. Just you have saying. to combine. Okay, combine the two. Okay, um, the first question. Which American writer invented the serial killer Dr. Hannibal Lecter? <laughs> you can all tell us who played him, no doubt. Uh, should we give him a clue? No, not really. Okay, you're so mean. <laughs> oh! Thomas Harris? It is! It was Thomas Harris! Was, I have to say, that was slightly more Santa than evil. That was a warm chuckle. It was kind of jovial. Um, which book would you like? The folk tales. The folk tales, very good choice. We, we want more Satan, less Santa, okay? <laughs> okay, second question. What is the name of the Joseph Conrad novel in which a young man miserably fails to be a hero when disaster hits a passenger ship, spending the rest of the novel trying to make up for it? Another. You can think about that. You can think about it, but you're going to yeah. have to think quickly. Okay. All right. We can have some thinking time. You know it. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. We want to know the answer. Oh, you want to know? <laughs> Does everyone want to Does know? Does everybody want to know? Is, is anyone still ruminating? I'll, I'll take a shot. Yeah, Go take on. a shot. Is it hard or dark? It's not. Oh. Rock wave. Thank you for playing. It's, it's, it certainly is by Joseph Conrad. Must no. It's the other one. It's the other one. Is it Lord Jean? Oh! English students unite. Well done. Everybody knows the Joseph Conrad, they just don't know what they're about. Oh, that's too tricky. Which book would you like, Andrew? Out of the Darkness. Yes, well, It's very appropriate. Book. Right, let's move on to easier questions, shall we? Uh, no, we if the villain is Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, who is the hero? Uh, all the trade yes! yes! More of an evil cough than an oh, evil oh, laugh. Oh, yes. There we go. <laughs> what book can we get you? Um, can I have the earth in Welsh? Uh, yes, you can. Yeah, you well. certainly can. There you go. Remaining to win Whirlwind Romance and The Body in the Shadows. If the hero is Peter Pan, who is the villain? Whoa! Oh, the entire table. All right. I think this the lady, yeah, you were slightly ahead. Yes, of course. But a last and easy one, right? Well done, romance. Yes. Well done. Well done. So we're down to one question, and then that one for the. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we we've got two questions left to the spare. So hopefully um, we won't need it. Um, who is the aristocratic villain of Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events? Oh, 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 yes. Yes! Well done. The body in the shadows. And, and finally, we have a special bonus prize. 
It's not a book. It's a mug. <laughs> Less thinking, more drinking. Yeah. And um, I think this is a very appropriate question for this particular um, prize. So, Spider-Man, Iron Man, the X-Men, Thor, Hulk, Ant-Man, Fantastic Four, Black Panther, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, Scarlet Witch, and the Black Widow. What or who do they all have in common? Yes! yes! <laughs> the most tentative oh. evil laugh. Yeah. <laughs> like a... The correct answer. Stanley! Am I going to do this evil thing? Should I be so evil? Well, that's basically all the questions that's, were in fact answered. That except. is all the questions. Well, well done, done, you clever lot. <laughs> right, shall we get on yeah. with the second half? No, apparently not. Um, they didn't. They didn't respond to that. Hey! Thank God for that. Okay. Um, the second half kicks off with Henchman Wanted by Reese Timson, read by Lisa Rose. Reese has had short fiction published by Free AM, Literary, Pop Shot, and Lighthouse, among other journals, as well as previously by Lions League. Actress, writer and mother, Lisa Rose, was awarded an Arts Council grant this year and is using to develop her one-woman show, The Power Project, about women in the entertainment industries. She's recently recorded In the Blood, an audiobook for Arachne Press, and is in production with her pilot comedy, Georgina and Summer, which has already won seven semi-final film festival awards. Lisa! Wanted by Rhys Timpson. You must be my 11 o'clock. Step into my office. I hope you didn't have any trouble finding us. Our dragon should have met you at the drawbridge, but perhaps he's on a smoke break. People can sometimes get a bit lost in the forest of illusion. I did argue with facilities management about the wisdom of sighting the castle entrance next to the maze of despair. But in any case, it's great that you've made it here on time, or made it here at all. Many don't. Please do take a seat. Just brush those bones onto the floor, don't worry. Those straps on the armrests aren't for you. We used to use that chair for torture, but now it's just for interviews. First of all, Thank you for applying for a position here at Castle Death. We know you have many options for employment as a henchman, and we are thrilled that you selected us as the place you want to start and most likely end your career. May I get you anything to drink? Tea? Coffee? The blood of an unbaptized infant? The last of these is fresh this morning. I'm afraid we're just out of sugar, but it's sweet enough, no? Well, let's crack on. We consider ourselves to be a human-centred organisation here at Castle Death. In particular, we're centred on the defeat and dismemberment of humans and their petty kingdoms. 
that's pretty much our mission here. We're looking for a dynamic self-starter who'll hit the ground running, preferably towards and not away from the swords, axes and maces of assaulting armies. Henchman is an entry-level position, but the prospects for the right candidate are very exciting indeed. I started out as a hench person myself, but I worked hard, and my talent for evil was recognised, and that's how I ended in HR. (laughs) We are very proud of our diversity and inclusion here at Castle Death. We have goblins, orcs, bugbears, even a balrog down in the warehouse. You have to be a bit careful of him, flaming temper, but the rest of the gang are very easygoing. We like to say we're a family here at Castle Death. It's not true, of course. Our CEO, the Dark Lord, is very much against actual families. Something to do with the seventh son of the seventh son prophecy, you understand? We must prevent it from coming to fruition. It's one of our key performance indicators. How are you with long hours? Working away from home? Certain death? Certain death pretty much goes with the job. As a henchman, you will be expected to leap into combat with any wandering adventurers with no regard for your own safety, preferably one at a time, or in a manner so as not to overwhelm the heroes and cause them to be defeated. Yes, as a strategy, it does result in a rather high churn rate for henchmen, but it's the way we've always done it, and organisational change is a slow process. We just don't have the bandwidth for it right now. You're a man of few words, eh? I like that. Henchmen don't need to do much talking. Still, some responses would be helpful, just so we can get to know each other. What would you say motivates you? What gets you out of your crypt in the morning? Hatred? Malice? A will to dominate all life, perhaps? Hmm. Your CV says some of your favourite things are crushing your enemies seeing them driven before you, and hearing the lamentation of their women. (laughs) That sounds promising, although I must say that as an equal opportunities organisation, we would insist on hearing the lamentation of both men and women, (laughs) and children. Our CEO loves hearing the lamentation of children. It's one of his favourite things. Where do you see yourself in five years? Dead? Undead? Well, if you work hard, throw yourself at enough heroic blades, you could find yourself a member of our prestigious zombie legion in no time at all. From then on, it's only a matter of time before you'd be a member of the skeleton squad. The only way is up here at Castle Death. Well, that's the end of my questions. I should say the pay is D-I-E. Uh, No, sorry, I mean D-O-E. No, wait, I mean die. If you ask the Dark Lord for money, you will die. But you do get free room and board. 
And you'll be pleased to hear that although we had some recent supply issues, meat is now back on the menu. There is a vegan option if you prefer. Uh, today is a mossy boulder with a side of gravel. Popular with the stone golems, but otherwise there's not much call for it. There are also opportunities for hybrid working, chiefly with our team of chimeras, manticores and minotaurs. So, all that remains is the tour. Let me show you around Castillo Death. These steps lead to the dungeon. There should really be a guard here at all times. I will have to report that. A quick note on our disciplinary procedure. Gross misconduct will result in summary execution. For more minor transgressions, you will receive just a verbal warning in the first instance. Although in this case, the verbal warning will be a death curse so you will die shortly after receiving it. It's very much a one strike and you're condemned to a painful and grisly demise policy. Quite old school in that sense. Yet careful of the blood on the steps here. It's slipperiest when fresh. We usually have five or six captives down here at any one time in various states of excruciating pain. We are blessed with a wide range of modern torture devices following a recent pain procurement programme here at the dungeon. We have gibbets, a rack, a wheel, an iron maiden, a brazen bull, a scavenger's daughter, a lazy Susan and a dumb waiter. <laughs> I'm not familiar with those last two, but our executioner assures me they are agony. <laughs> Talking of our executioner... He was supposed to be here. Must be on his break. Suppose he took the prisoners with him. Field trip, perhaps. Anyway, over here is the barracks. This is where you'll be sleeping when not on campaign against the races of men. It's a bit dark, but you should be able to get an idea of the facilities. We offer fresh straw twice a year, and after two years of service, you will get your very own slop bucket. It's a fun crowd. Usually they'd be up till the small hours, swigging mead and pulling the limbs off small children. But everyone appears to have gone to bed early tonight. Must say, I've never seen them sleep in piles on the floor like that. Long day, I guess. We are a hard-working, dynamic team here at Castle Death. Everyone really gives it their all. Up here are the battlements. We've recently had these refurbished. These merlons here are the best in class. Uh, be careful of the gaps between them. In the past, we've had some issues with guards falling to their deaths, which had a negative impact on our staff retention rates. I was about to say we've had 28 days without fall-based fatalities, but it looks like quite a few have gone over the side tonight. Well, that just creates new vacancies for new blood to join the team. Moving along, this door here leads to the treasure chamber. I can't show you inside, as it's kept locked at all times, and the key is held by the Dark Lord himself. Among the prizes inside are the Crown of Kings, the Rings of Power, the Sword of Cain, the Eye of Vecna, 
and all our office supplies. <laughs> the Dark Lord likes to keep a tight rein on stationary costs. Oh, it's open. I suppose he must have been in recently and forgotten to lock it. Anyway, moving on. Here is the last stop in our tour, the Eyrie. This is the highest point of the castle and very exposed, so watch your footing. The minions here are rocks and harpies. My sister is a head harpy, and she was recently appointed vice president of aerial murder and executions. I know what you're thinking. My sister must be all feathers and talons, and then there's him, me here, with my hundreds of eyes and oozing tentacles. Not much family resemblance. She takes after our mother, the Queen of the Harpies, while I am much more like our father, the Grand Shoggoth of Yar. What can I say? Opposites attract. What's that? You and your brothers all look alike? How many did you say you had? Six. All older, you say. And, uh... Just out of interest, how many uncles? Oh, so many. I see. Is that a magic sword you have there by any chance? Yes, thought so. The glowing runes are a dead giveaway. Well, um, thank you for your application. I'm not sure the henchman position is the best fit for you, and I'm afraid we won't be taking it any further at this time. But do feel free to apply for any other roles you think may be suitable. We don't have any openings for heroes, but have you considered being a festering corpse? A decapitated head? A pile of picked clean bones? I see many opportunities in your future. Gods! Gods! Seize him! Ah, yes. I forgot there are no guards left, are there? You weren't lying when you said you were conscientious. I am doubting your claim to integrity, however. <laughs> How about we take this offline, you and I, touch base in a few moons? I mean, perhaps you might be prepared to show mercy? Yes, I may be a shambling cosmic horror, responsible for the torture and murder of thousands of innocents, but give me a chance. I can change. Truth is, I've been quiet quitting for years. And the days of having a job for life are gone. After all, with a bit of downtime, I could reskill. Perhaps in a year or two, I could have a career in cyber. <laughs> or perhaps not. Perhaps death is the better option. Come at me then. Let's get this over with. Thank you, Lisa. Before the big boss battle of the evening, I have um, some notices. I have a memo from Edna Mole. It simply says... No capes. <laughs> uh, we'll be back at the Phoenix in two months' time for our annual Women and Girls theme. Stories written by women to be read by women. Submissions open until the 2nd of July. 
If you want to write for one of our other upcoming themes, including October's Doom and Gloom, you'll find details and deadlines on the Liars webpage, along with all of our origin stories. <laughs> and so, our final story of the evening will be The Grappler by S. Tierney, read by Clive Green. S. Tierney is an author of novels, short stories, the off-the-wall comic series Pointless Conversations, and the off-the-crumpet superhero series Crumpet Hands Man. He currently resides in the northwest of England. Examples of his writing and graphic design work can be found online. Clive has just completed a year in the West End in Witness for the Prosecution, and is currently playing several roles in the immersive War of the World. He's an author of the play Laurel and Hancock and co-author of The Ballad of Crookback and Shakespeare and also The Goodbye, The Afterlife of Cook and Moore, which are a sellout run at Leicester Square Theatre. Recent film includes Helen Razor and Somebody's Daughter and also appeared in Celebrity Murder Mystery for Channel 5. Also the films See How They Run and Blangler. Bangla Town. Clive! The Grappler by S. Tierney. Well, I'll be a the Granite Grappler. Now, there is a name I haven't heard in a long time. The Granite in question was very much as his name would suggest. Grey, unyielding, cracked, eroded, like he'd been dug from the earth with the bluntest of shovels. He comprised more than 400 pounds of calloused, unshaven meat, every blubberous fold shot with rosacea, sagging from all the wrong places and tallied with blade marks. These were just the glowing characteristics. Never thought I'd see him in colour, the manager muttered, as the grappler arduously continued his slog down the gym's creaking staircase. Shit, I seen sacks of coal empty down a chute with more finesse. <laughs> if you say so, brother, said the brand's newly hired executive of media and social influence, a bottle of Aswagunda-infused green tea in one hand, a smartphone, the sole focus of his existence, in the other. If only to underline the manager's derision, the grappler trudged his way across the gym with all the grace of a volcanic continent. When he stepped his mass upon the ring apron, it bowed like a trampoline. He hunched himself between the ropes. Ah hunk of hard cheese to a grater. Once inside the ring, the said cheese's exhibition did not improve. When he leaned his bulk into the ring ropes, testing their fortitude, they came up short, or rather long. The ropes yielded with such elasticity that the grappler practically cracked the back of his skull on the gym floor. Remind me again, why in the Sand Hill are we given that a tryout? 
Nostalgia, the executive said plainly, lost to the scrolling of his feed. The manager cocked an eyebrow. By his reckoning, the only demographic that would remember the grappler fondly were those seeing out their final years in a retirement home or dancing the mamba with the worms. Come on. That was the nub of the executive pitch. Repeated viewing of the Wolf of Wall Street paying dividends. See if the big man can still work five minutes. An attraction match. That's all the shareholders are asking. Relenting to the executive's silver tongue, at least before it went any further up his ass, the manager surveyed the bevy of mid-carders whose contracts were coming up for renewal. Fine, I'll do what's good for business, brother. In comparison to the molting stag that was the grappler, the two wrestlers of the manager's choosing were proverbial bucks, cut from bronze, tanned, brazen, gleaming with tribal-tattooed six-packs and Brazilian dick roots. They were shredded so low on the body fat index, one could practically see the sperm paddling in their nuts. <laughs> there was probably more fat under the grappler's chin or the chin between his chins. So why you want us to go over, huh? For that? The bucks bemoaned indignantly, hands on narrow hips. You like getting paid? The manager asked. Eyes of steel, a fist of the same persuasion. Double time says you'll go five minutes with it. The bucks conferred between themselves. Double time? Each? The manager shrugged. And a shot at the belt. This fantastic condition almost caused the manager to choke on his toothpick. We'll keep it in mind, the executive placated with a salesman's wheedle, as opposed to his colleague's whip. Convinced that another rung up the ladder towards fame and a lucrative movie deal had been surmounted, the two bucks practically skipped to the ring, awaiting them in the corner, like a great sack of bills just begging to be laundered, leaned the grappler. Barely able to contain their snickers, the two bucks sprang into the ring. If only to parade their prowess, they each performed ever more impressive stretches. No ballerina, his tendons about as flexible as a wrecking ball's chain, the grappler's routine began and ended with a roll of the shoulders and a sharp cracking of the neck. The grind of bone against bone sounded like a locomotive's crank. This is going to be a train wreck! The manager muttered to himself. Nonetheless, with a cursory nod to the hands at ringside, he signaled that the bell was rung. Its peal lingered around the gym like a death toll. It had barely finished reverberating, and already the grappler was sweating bullets. While his partner stalked the outside, the lead buck strolled across the center of the ring towards the grappler, as tradition dictated. The grappler offered his hand. The buck considered it, as one might a gravedigger's mitten. Cut, your bastard. He shoved the grappler square in the chest. The grappler tumbled backwards and fell stiffly against the ropes. The manager nearly fell into a coma. As sympathetically as a sailor pulls a body from the water, the buck took the grappler up by the straps of his foul-smelling leotard and shoved him back across the ring. The grappler staggered the full length of the ring before colliding got first with the corner post. 
By the time he'd lurched his winded mass around, the buck was declaring, it's about time we give this lamb some chops. Said chops came in a barrage of the knife-edge variety. Backhand forearms served hard and flat across the chest. Each smack cracked like a whip, causing every man and woman with an earshot to wince. None more so than the grappler. His expression fixed in a yearbook grin, the buck called across the ring to his partner, I reckon it's about time we get this boulder rolling. Taking his opponent, roughshod by the arm, the buck gleefully launched the grappler into the ropes. Like a reluctant heifer, encouraged by the pointy end of a prod to the nether regions. Or in this case, a spank from the second buck in the same place. Back the grappler rebounded. With a matador's poise, the buck swerved the charging grappler, expertly accelerating him into the opposing ropes with a shove in the not-so-small of his back. Rope, stretch, rebound. The grappler sprang back, worried that his expensive ring may flip over at any minute, never mind the whole damn building. The manager was thankful when the buck stepped in front of the grappler and delivered a textbook clothesline. Straight on, stiff, just below the sternum. The grappler took it like a biker colliding with a tree. Those at the ringside rubbernecked. You had enough nostalgia for one day? Sip, sip, scroll, scroll. We've all got our masters, brother. The manager spat a splintered toothpick to the floor. So be it. By this point, a crowd of spectators had begun to amass around the ring clamoring morbidly at the edge like drunkards gargling at a freak show. They laughed openly at the grappler's ruination. Ringside phones were hoisted, cameras aimed, hashtag asswoman, soon to be trending. Rising to his audience, a clown before his rabble, the buck teased the big man for all to hear, slapping him around for all to see. <laughs> you want to take a nap on the outside, Gramps? Stoic to a fault, the grappler sh shook his head. He looked the buck square in the face, and he offered up his chins. For Christ's sake, man, the manager willed a heartfelt whisper. Stay the hell down. Never, be it pride or pig ignorance, the man, formerly of stone, took his beatings with all the compliance of a hanging side of pork. From behind a flurry of potato jabs, one buck said to the other, Hardly seems fair. We should let him even up the odds. Nah, fair's fair. He's, he's literally twice the man we are. <laughs> no shit, the manager sneered. Had there been a referee present, he would have taken one look at the grappler, signaled an X, crossed himself in the name of the father, and called for a mortician. But since neither savior nor undertaker were anywhere to be found, the manager took it upon himself to intervene, bringing a halt to the buck's frivolities before they turned into a ritual slaughter. The wolves climbed off their kill. Unsteady as a calf with half its entrails littering the savannah, the grappler hauled himself to his feet, rope by rope, exhausted, swaying like an oak, one axe swing from being felled he wiped the sweat and the blood from his face. He regarded his trembling, bloody palm 
with Shakespearean contemplation, peering off past the ropes to the horizon, the last soldier observing a sunset over the trenches. Time inside the ring seemed to stand still. Without their knowing it, an organic hush had descended over the crowd at the ringside. In spite of themselves, shyly, several aged spectators cheered words of encouragement. Gradually, single voices. More followed. Someone clapped. More followed. The grappler's gaze seemed to lift, his eyes brightening. With a determined straightening of his back, so many weathered vertebrae stacked like stone, he slowly righted to his full imperious height. Eyebrows lowered, bleeding frown, he narrowed his gaze in the direction of the two bucks. Their spunk having deserted them, the bucks were as motionless as two strays in the headlights of a horner. Regally, the grappler brought a great bloody hand to the shoulder of his leotard. He puffed out his chest, widened his stance, and dropped a strap. The toothpick fell from the manager's mouth. Now come back. Huh? The executive said, peering up from his phone. Now come back, kid. The goddamn comeback. A right arm from the grappler swung with all the might of an elephant's trunk, landed stiff. The buck never even saw it. He hit the ropes like a rag doll hurled against a barbed wire fence. Before he knew what was happening, he found himself in the grappler's clutches, held aloft like a trophy kill. In a single effortless motion, the grappler rolled his shoulders and tossed the buck like he was nothing. Over the ropes, the buck flew, face first to the floorboards, landing in a heap of defeat at the shoes of the astonished crowd. The buck received no attention, either medical or sympathetic. Lost to their basking, everyone inside the gym beheld the grappler with the wonder reserved for solar phenomena. The grappler rounded towards the second buck, who receded into the ring's corner, his lean middle nuts shrinking up inside him. The second strap was dropped. And that was when the real cheering began. Not wishing to go the same way as his partner, the second buck put up more of a fight. He lunged at the oncoming grappler. The manager grinned. <laughs> you dumb mark, now you're for it. It came in the form of a big left, then a big right, left, right, left, right, big boot, big elbow. Hey, how about another? Just full up, why don't you? But the beating had gone on long enough. It was time. With a subtle raising of his arm, timepiece precision, the grappler signaled his finisher. The hammer. The manager wanted it so badly he could taste it. Happy to oblige, the grappler clamped a huge paw around the buck's throat and lifted him towards the heavens. Here the grappler held him, displayed him, then to an orgasmic pop, the crowd hollering, Back down to earth the buck came. The entire ring shook as though impacted by a megaton bomb.
smooth as butter, the grappler dropped for the pin. One, two, three. The manager parted the throng and rang the bell himself. The crowd exploded. Triumphant, yet without a trace of arrogance. Nor the manager noticed even a shortness of breath. The grappler pulled up his straps. He waited magnanimously until his audience had concluded their applause. And that, he said, that is professional wrestling. Thank you, Klein. And with that, our epic quest is at an end. <clears throat> Do stick around if you can while I nip into a phone box to change back into my normal self. And while Katie holds aloft a big sword and strikes a victorious pose, we may be leaving plot holes in the Phoenix basement ceiling. For now, please go wild for our villainous authors and our heroic actors. Good night! <laughs>